So this is a very special day, and uh, I'm sitting here with Antonio Sacre, dear friend of mine. And just so you all know, the genesis of this podcast, well, we talked about doing something together because he's here visiting me in Colorado, but this morning, just to put an image to it, we were walking multiple laps around a graveyard in the Colorado summer heat. He was wearing a really, really dorky hat with a flap over his neck, and I was wearing an even dorkier getup with a ball cap a bandana and a fully packed backpack <laughs> and <laughs> trekking poles <laughs> as we did multiple laps around this graveyard. People were asking me, where are you going? What is your objective? <laughs> and, well, actually I had two objectives. There's one, I think better when I move. So I said to Antonio, I said, let's go on a walk this morning and talk about what we might explore today on the podcast. And two, Next week, I'm meeting my 19-year-old twin daughters on the Colorado Trail for, well, they're, they're doing 480 miles, and I'm meeting them for 55 miles. So they've been saying to me over and over, Dad, you have to be in shape. Will you be in shape? Will you be ready? Because we're going to be a month ahead of you. So today I was getting in shape, walking with you with our dorky hats. And as you pointed out, we both had shirts with whales on them. <laughs> you have a Moby Dick shirt, and I have this faded 70s, like, save the whale shirt. <laughs> so we were looking good. <laughs> it was fantastic. It was good. So sometimes I've uh, had people ask me, if you couldn't be a psychiatrist, what would you be? And the truth is, I say, I wish I could be a professional storyteller. I thought that's... And then some people have pointed out, well, you are a storyteller. You know, with Back from the Abyss, you are a storyteller. And I thought, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, not making any money doing that, so I'm an amateur storyteller. <laughs> but, um, but today, it's so great to have my dear friend Antonio, who is a professional storyteller, real deal, travel around the world telling stories, writing stories. And uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, Antonio was a huge part of both the genesis and evolution of this podcast, because in the spring of 2019, when I was thinking about doing a podcast, Antonio gave me some really just heartfelt, thoughtful advice. And then when the first episode came out, Strawberries, or before it came out, Chris and I had spent many, 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 many hours, and I was sending Antonio what I thought was the well, more or less final edit for his stamp of approval. <laughs> And I said to him, you can tell me anything that you want. Be very open and honest. And uh, he said, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. People are going to love it. But I said, come on, tell me the real story. And then and then an hour and a half later, I realized <laughs> <laughs> that it had potential. <laughs> but no, but this was, so, this was one of the many things I love about you is you can just be really sweet and caring and also... Like, do you want to know the truth? And yeah, every, everything that you mentioned, I've tried to incorporate. Wow. I, I was, I feel like a little bit of a jerk in some ways, but I also was like, I was aware of the, your intention. It, it, you, you know, I love any kind of story. I love, you know, there, there's some storytelling shows that are just, you know, people just chatting, you know, the moth can be like that. Just a random dude or woman picked out a random, they're telling their story. And you know, I think many stories just have that kind of power, right? But you're, I felt you wanting to go to the next level. And I, this is what I spend my life with. And I, so I basically just treated you the way my directors and mentors and, and my story folk would have treated one of my stories. And, uh, ruthlessly. Well, you know, <laughs> but I also felt that you, you could handle it. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And it was, it was, it was the, you know, whatever the prize or the final product was going to be worth it. It was worth my time and your time to, to be at the beginning of something to, share a dream with somebody that's improbable in some ways, you know, um, I definitely don't want to squash any of that at all, but it's also like, but, but there's something amazing that can come from this and let's mm -hmm. try to reach that. I think mm -hmm. anyway, what is it about stories? Again, that's a thing that you and I share our love. I mean, you have made your living doing that and told stories all over the world and, and back from the abyss is going around the world in a different way. But why are stories so powerful and moving? And what is it about stories that so capture us? Mm. Our brains are hardwired for story. It's just the way, you know, the way we have communicated for millennia. Um, and I feel like there's something about, it's a short circuit. Somebody told me that the shortest distance between two people is a story. 
Um, and I think that, I think that's just, it's just the way we are. Um, you know, it's kindly constantly getting reinforced. I, I feel like there's also something about knowing we're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is, uh, there's so much difference between everybody in many different ways and culturally and, and all these different things. And yet at the core, we all share some of these things that these stories touch on. We want to be loved. We want to love. We want to survive. We want to be challenged. We want to be useful. We want to be silly, you know, and, you know, sometimes we forget, you know, one of the, the joy of being a dad, I have two children, a little bit younger than, than your children. So I get to sort of see where I'm going is to like, oh, wow, this is, you know, when my daughter was five, this is a butterfly and to look at it differently. So stories remind us to look at it. You know, we forget what it was like to fall in love when we were teenagers and now you have teenagers, you know what I mean? So what is that? Oh yeah, that's, let me hear a story about that. Let me see a movie about that. Let me see, listen to a song about that. You think about some of your favorite songs, they're, they're just telling stories, you know, there's, there's a lot else going on, but I have some, some of my family members who are uh, lovely for sure, but just can't tell a story. Right. So like (laughs) there's one lovely, lovely person who will remain nameless will be like, she'll say like, oh yeah, I was going to the store and I met this guy. I think I was getting ham. No, maybe it was roast beef. I think I was getting turkey. It's not the point of it. It's not with that. It's what happened with the guy. Oh yeah, yeah, the guy. So anyway, he says to me, and then I looked and I saw that the ham was, and I'm like, oh my gosh, just get to the point, you know? So when somebody does get to the point, you know, in some ways you get to do that with the podcast when you get to edit, you know, some of the stuff we'll say today, we'll edit out, right? So you get to the point. Um, you know, life, you know, I do want to know how your commute was, what the weather is like in Fort Collins. But when I call you on the phone to talk to you, I want to know like, what's happening with you as a dad? What's happening with you as a doctor? What is, are you, are you and your wife? Okay. Like, you know, I want to laugh with you. I want to talk about the Broncos with you. We love talking football, but I also want to know what's the story, the the story behind it. I wonder too, if, you know, we are such meaning making machines, like we just, we have to we we have to make meaning of things and stories are the way we do it because i think stories are the way we put a narrative arc and characters and we we explain to ourselves the why and the what and the how and and if we don't have stories we don't have any way to really you know contextualize meaning it's really interesting i i I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, I live in Los Angeles and I have, I have a career coach. We have coaches and uh, I know that many people know what this is, but some people don't. She's my change strategist and she helps me. The idea of like the story you tell yourself, you're just making up and why not tell a better story? So I've been a writer for years, uh, both published and unpublished, and I've faced rejection a million times. I send out a manuscript and my immediate thing after I hit send is they have instantaneously read it and they hate it and they think I'm a terrible writer. That's the story I'm telling. And I believe it. I totally believe it. And then I realized, you know, after I sort of take a breath and come back, I'm like, wait a minute, maybe they haven't read it yet. It's the weekend. It's the summer. They're on vacation. Oh, so this amazing manuscript they're going to read in a week and they're going to love it and give me a book deal. You know, so which story makes me feel better? I'm telling, I'm going to tell the story anyway. Like you said, we're meaning making machines. So I have to give myself a reason why they haven't responded. One is defeating and makes me never want to write again. Another is hopeful. And then I eventually get to whatever the reality is. They never got it. They, it's not right for them. It's the wrong public. It doesn't matter. So it's very interesting to me because I don't want to lie either. I want to be honest. Are both stories honest? I don't, in the lack of information, I'm going to fabricate a story you know, my, you know, my, my kid is, is late. It's cause he's, he's lying in a ditch uh, cause he got hit on a, the car on his bike on, oh, he's just having fun, fun with his friend. They're both made up stories. What makes me feel better? What, you know, what gets me going? Um, yeah. You, meaning making machines. I think that there, I, I think that there's some functional MRIs that, <laughs> that prove this. Um, believe it or not, there's, I have heard this from my, my storytelling professor mentor who said that there's an area of the brain that only activates when you're being told a story by someone you love. Mm-hmm. And this has been proved in coma patients. So they'll like have a, a nurse read to the patient and the MRI maybe goes a little bit, but their son or nephew or niece comes in and then the, this coma patient's MRI is, whatever, again, whatever the technology is, lights up. And so 
it's you know it's it, why is that there i don't know but it's there and let's mm. you know uh very very powerful yeah yeah it kind of reminds me of some of the research that suggests the way that people change their mind about some deeply heartfelt belief it's only through the connection of its story with someone else mm. that you have to hear a story but it has to come from someone that you really trust and feel close to and then that has the power to switch some deeply held belief hmm. this idea of stories you know one of the things one of the many things i've learned from you is that there can be so many levels to a story and i spoke about this idea i think last season in the fishbowl but when i sent you that very first episode you said there's so many different uh levels or parts or threads to a story and your main story of strawberries it's an amazing story but you said what about sort of the meta critique, the expert critique. What about Craig, your background story? What about the context of you and Elizabeth? You know, did you know each other? How did she come to tell the story? And this idea that there's all these different stories woven together with one story, because I was thinking back from the abyss would be a storytelling podcast where people told a story. And then after that conversation with you, I realized, oh, each story, each episode has the chance to weave in all these other elements, which makes it much more complicated, but much richer. It, it, it's funny. I, I do most of the living that I make as a storyteller is for children. So that level of complexity is, is not helpful when you're telling a story. Part of it has to do with your audience, right? So when you have a, the advantage or the joy of a podcast audience is they're choosing to listen to you on their own time with theoretically little distraction. Maybe they're in earphones or they're in their car, so that's the only thing that's going on. So I think you do have the space or the capacity to get to those other layers. And, you know, you, you think about great literature, you know, there's, so, there's always so much more going on. And I personally, it, this is a little bit of a, just a personality bias, I'm super interested in, in Craig, the the friend. You know what I mean? So like... Yes, this story of Elizabeth is amazing, but I don't really know her. I know you. So like, what is it, you know, so this is, you know, it's going back and forth between the, the professional storyteller and then the, you know, so tell me, you know, I'm going to listen to these first few episodes because of you, Craig, not because of anything else. And I ended up getting sucked into the, the whole thing. I've been on a ride. Thanks. Thanks, Chris and Craig. It's awesome. It's a, can't wait for season three to drop, actually. This weekend. Excellent. Cannot wait. When you and I were talking, like, who who is the audience for this? You know, who is the... If you had one... I remember... I think I did ask you this. It's one person who's going to turn... You're only going to have one listener. It's just my mom. It's your mom. <laughs> it's you. And you. <laughs> Chris has got to listen to it. No, Chris. <laughs> the, actually, Chris says that the episodes are often sad and it's, they're hard to listen to. So mm. I wouldn't say he's even a number one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think it's you and my mom and a couple of thousand, a couple thousand other people. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know, you have. In some ways, it does. I because I work with so many different audiences, it does matter who the audience is. It's totally different if it's for psychiatrists versus people who have a family member who is suffering some tragic thing versus the person who is suffering the tragic thing. These are three very different people. So what happens if we can combine them so all three of these people that would theoretically be a part of this person's life can benefit or enjoy or understand back to the, the you know the shortest difference distance between two people is a story. How do I understand? Because it seems so un- understandable why you are in such pain or why you're in such turmoil or why this thing happened to you. Yeah, I think a lot about something I heard Tim Ferriss say, which is that not everybody's going to love every episode, but hopefully some percentage of your listeners will love each episode. So when I'm trying to think about you know, the primacy of the person's story versus kind of the learning, educational, meta-analysis versus my own relationship with that person versus my backstory, the... the each have 
you know, different uh, weights in each episode, but I figure it'll all, you know, even out in the end. Well, I think one of the things your podcast does really extraordinarily well, um, you know, but is the music. I, Chris is really doing an amazing job to to help us have a break. As you can tell, these stories are, some of them are just brutally heartbreaking. And it's just, it's so sad that anybody has to go through I mean, you could almost take any episode. Really, you had to do that. I'm, I'm sorry for you. You know, so it's you have figured out uh, a way of making, you know, the worst of what life has to offer palatable. And I think part of that has to do with the music, and part of it has to do with, hey, let me talk to you now. This is what's going on. This is, this might, you know, it helps, it helps break, break it a little bit so that we can survive it. You know, I mean, the, the title of the podcast is Back from the Abyss. So we know that the patient is going to survive it or the, the storyteller is going to survive it or this person is going to survive it. But it still doesn't, it feels like, oh, maybe this is the, you know, and then you come out at the end and then they all died. I'm sorry, but they did not make, this is the, this is, they fell into the abyss episode. You know, I don't want anyone to fall into the abyss or get close to the abyss. So I I listen a lot of times like, okay, I want to be, you know, I want to be a better I want to be a better person. I, I want to be an abyss avoidant. I want to be I want to be I want to be how to not go to the abyss podcast. <laughs> and uh you know how Which is, can, that would be called Don't Get Born. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. How do yeah exactly. You know, as one of your super fans, you know, I, I do wonder about how everybody's doing. We've mm-hmm. heard two seasons of people and we're presuming, you know, ba- baked into the title is they are back. So they have made their journey. This is how they made their journey. It's amazing that they had the strength or they had the help or the resources or the medicine or the uh, counseling or the family or whatever, or their internal strength. Are they still Okay. Are they all still alive? Mm-hmm. Did did they go back into addiction? Are they back in that bad situation? Are they living back with those meth dealers? Did they get out of the bar? Did they are they did they find love again? Like you know, so just as a you know you know divorcing myself from the fact that they're they're real people. You know, mm-hmm. I, I do I'm I'm thinking of it as a fan, as a friend, and as a writer. So as a writer, like oh, what happened to that character? It's not a character; it's a person. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be cavalier about it, but. How is everybody doing? You know yeah, what I mean? That's a great question. Everyone's alive. <laughs> that's, know, that's, yeah. Because just statistically, if Back from the Abyss keeps rolling along, statistically, one of these people is going to die at their own hand. Um, because these are a lot of people with really profound trauma and depression and bipolar disorder and addiction. And those are often fatal illnesses. So I am happy to report that everyone's alive. I would say just off the top of my head, about three quarters of people who've told their story, actually, I would say thriving. And I would say about a quarter are still struggling quite a bit. And it kind of reminds me of that adage, you know, your your issues are your issues. You know, that the past is a pretty good predictor of the future. So, you know, people who are struggling with eating disorder and body image or have been, they are in the past people that are still struggling with substances still have that somewhat. Um, for some people, especially some people that have really struggled with chronic suicidality, I mean, that can become a hab- habitual way of thinking, which is very strange. But even when you're in a non-depressed or stable state, that can be just a thing you just flip into. Like things get hard or stressful and it's your brain goes, okay, you should die, time to die. And that can take years to really start to change those circuits. But I I do think about that. I do think that there's, you know, some chance that, um, not just that some or all of them will go back in the abyss, because I think many of them will, if not with the issue that brought them on back from the abyss, but with something else, because, gosh, we're all going to lose everything we've ever known and loved. We just don't know how exactly that's going to unfold. So leaving mental illness aside, I mean, great darkness awaits both of us. And more reason to 
find some close friends and go on a walk and connect and throw the frisbee and and try to find some ways to be strong and grateful now because you know the hard stuff's coming mm. that's so true there's uh, <clears throat> I was talking to you about this the 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 switching into story structure a little bit you know the hero or the heroine joseph campbell's hero with a thousand faces gets wounded you know the society is shattered in some way and he or she needs to find help they find mentors they're challenged by demons these you know these evil beings they have a test that is life or death where they may actually die if they pass the test then they get magic and transformation and then life is changed it's never the same but it's definitely changed and the campbell says and then they get wounded again and the cycle. So it's like you, if you're in the middle of a wounding, there are mentors out there you need to find. Mm. There's magic out there. If you can pass the test, you may not, but if you can, you're going to come out, you're going to get remarried or you're going to, you know, whatever, whatever the situation is. Plus it's the hard places where we really learn and we don't learn anything from when things are going well. We don't learn anything when we're not double faulting or when we're just in our amazingness or mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. in our zone or mm-hmm. it's you know we really learn when we make mistakes or bad things happen or we're just in the morass of darkness and then you know hopefully at some point we again can come up with a story in our head and our heart that that we can hold to be true and genuine and hopefully uh, educational that we can learn. And, you know, everyone who's told their story and back from the abyss has said that actually telling their story, the the act of telling the story and formulating it was a huge part of solidifying some healing for them. Hmm. Again, it's just speaking to the power of, of, of trying to come up with a c- coherent narrative that we, that we can f- really feel to be true and, and meaningful. In some ways, telling the story, you're, you're, you're figuring it out. Who are the characters? What's going mm-hmm. on? So, and just, there's power in just figuring it out. Oh, this thing happened. Okay, great. This is, you know, this is, then this happened, and then this is the result. There's some power in that. If you can't even formulate what's going on, there's no, I don't feel there's a path to resolution. about you would you say that you've had an abyss moment Mm. or an abyss time in your life there was just a lot of abuse in the 70s like there was a lot of physical and verbal abuse that was normal i remember going to school and like we would all you know who got hit with what my mom hit me with a belt my mom my dad hit me with a brush i got hit with a coffee man we would all laugh about it um my mom called me and we would go over the litany of whatever we got called you know and um and you know it's like but now, like, that's not the way to raise kids. That's, that doesn't help anything. Um, so I'm skirting the question a little bit. Uh, my parents had a pretty brutal divorce. My mom got an amazing amount of alimony but couldn't handle the money. I'm a, I'm a son of a psychiatrist. Another reason why I love your, your – my dad was like – when I told him – one of my oldest friends, I said – I spoke to him in Spanish. Oye, papá, un amigo mío mejor que va a ser un psiquiatro. He's like, why would he be a psychiatrist? Tell him to go back to medical school and become a surgeon or become a pediatrician. What is wrong with him? He was mad at you, Craig. So um, – so, you know, he, he was, he had, you know, this was the seventies, you know, he was, this is pre-insurance disaster. He was making money and very fair alimony, but my mom did, had no idea how to spend it. So I spent three weeks as the richest kid in, in Delaware and then a week, like trying to find food, you know? And so there's this like this low level trauma, um, you know, and then this, this really bitter divorce. Uh, there was a time I was 17. I can't, I, it really was like. For sure, it was my first, you know, suicidal thought, right? Maybe, maybe it'd just be easier to end it, right? This is, and I, and my dad had a gun in the house, which I didn't even know. And so I knew where it was. And I, I remember thinking like, this would be, this would be easy. And it would also just send a message, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And I, I don't remember, I think, how did it come out of it? I feel like there's the sharing of the pain that finally signals. I think I was, I think it was a U2 song that I blasted on the radio. Maybe it was Sunday, bloody Sunday. And then I realized I had to tell my mom and I went home. I was at my dad's house. I went to my mom's house and tried to tell her. I just ended up on the kitchen table sobbing. And then she told the counselor at school and then they told my dad. And, you know, so like it was the idea of like realizing I could tell somebody the story of how I really felt. Cause I was, I was put together Catholic high school, not straight A's, but pretty good, you know? Um, and so I had to show them in a way that wasn't suicidal that I was not as put together as I saw. So that was, you know, thinking through some of your episodes, like, oh, that was a moment. And I don't even remember if I went to counseling or not, but it was, you know, sharing sharing the story, feeling like I could share it, you know, a little bit of like what I've, you know. And the second the second abyss moment, uh, I was married and I ended up getting a divorce and it felt like the end of the world. It did. And uh, I felt, I do remember, as a matter of fact, in the, you know, the dark night of that when I realized that was going to happen, calling you the next day, calling my brother. Actually, I called my friend Brian in the middle of the night. He's the only one I know that would have answered the phone at three in the morning. And at the end of that day, realizing I got these three dudes that when I really like, I feel like it's the end of the world, I can talk to these dudes. And it took a while to come out of it. You know, that feeling of like, I'm, I'm unlovable. I, I will never be loved again. I will never trust anybody in that way again. Um, so those those two moments, you know, basically basically a broken heart and a, and a broken childhood, you know, mm-hmm. um, and in some ways that's so common. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, you know, it's not common though. I'm thinking of that divorce story, and I remember you calling me. Um, is that so many men have no close friends? I mean, one of the things I ask everybody in my initial evaluation is how many close friends do you have? And people say, what do you mean? I say, well, let's define close as somebody that you can open up with the, about the hard stuff, like impending divorce or depression or addiction. And most every man I see says none. And sometimes they'll say my wife, but usually they say none, or they'll say, oh, I had a close friend in college. But I mean, like the median and the mean is zero. Mm. And again, there's some selection bias because I see a lot of people with depression and anxiety, but you know, even the popular surveys I've seen, you know, American men, how many close friends do they have? Most American men say zero or one. And so I'm thinking about you going through that awful, awful divorce. And, you know, a divorce is an amputation and it's having your heart ripped out. And you had three people that you could open up to. And uh, so, especially men, so many men do not have anything like that. It's just, it's, it's so sad. It is. It's interesting. I, you know, in some ways, like aware of how lucky I am in that way, but also there's, there's a, there's a vulnerability that's hard as a man sometimes. And we've, we, maybe we learn this, we're men of a certain age, right? So maybe we learn this in a way, but we need a t-shirt that says that (laughs) we we are men of a certain age. (laughs) I'm wearing this hat for a reason. And these dorky whale shirts. (laughs) Don't talk to us. (laughs) And I have these trekking poles for a reason. Don't talk to me. (laughs) Stay away. (laughs) (laughs) uh uh it's i mean there's also there's a caretaking thing right like i'm like oh no i can't call my guy he's busy he's got a job he's got three you had three kids he's you know he's he's busy you know my brother he's you know so there's there's a little bit of a caretaking thing and it's just it's just some girl dumped me what's the big deal you know what i mean like there's there's this i should be strong enough to handle this you know and i feel like it's also really strong to be like, you know what? I can't, I gotta, I, I, I at least just need to share some of it, you know, to feel like there's an image of from an old story of, you know, you can't take anybody's pain away, but you can take a little, a little cupful, a little thimbleful, And even that is just a, a let me carry this for a little bit for you, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. I really think, you know, we heal through relationship and, and divorce is one of the most profound relationship insults. Yeah. And to have your life partner, turn away from you. And, and I, I do believe that one of the reasons that you healed in my mind pretty quickly from that is that you had some people that you're very close to and that you could be real with. And you knew that you weren't alone. Cause I think a lot of people get divorced and they are, especially men are essentially alone. 
I did go, I did have enough, you know, I both as a child of a psychiatrist and for, to go to a counselor. And he was, he was very clear to say, this is normal what you're feeling, you know, and this, this, this behavior that you're in now is, is also normal. And this is, we'll, we'll talk about this, but this is, you know, so I, you know, you, you feel like you want to be so unique, you know, but to then also be told, ah, I see a hundred dudes who've gone through this. This is exactly right. Of course, you, you know, I remember him even telling me that you know, I, I thought I said, I said, there's no woman who's ever going to want to date me again. He's like, totally normal to feel that. And he just asked me all the women, you know what I mean? Like it was just, it, I feel like there's something about that. There's something really, we are all human. We've all figured it out and have, you know, hopefully, I guess. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite Back from the Abyss episodes was Touching the Edges of Life in season two, which is about divorce. And, you know, I think in season one, I wouldn't have had an episode about divorce because I think, well, that's not really psychiatric or it's not a mental illness. But that episode was very beloved. And I think Elena in, in that episode spoke to the universality of of the faith of, that someone's going to be there for you and that you're going to go through these waters of life together and then to have that end. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, again, such a common thing, but a completely psychologically, spiritually crushing blow. Even if it's a, you know amicable divorce, even if it's the good divorce, it's, mm -hmm. it's still this awful amputation. Mm -hmm. I was interested in your back from the abyss moment um, as both as a fan and as a friend. Definitely my back from the abyss story. There were a number of moments, but uh, I had to do with my addiction earlier in my career. And I've talked about that a little bit in some of the other episodes, but to give a little more detailed version yeah, earlier in my career, I fell hard into amphetamine addiction and that was happening in the context of a number of suicides and having busy family life and being a very hard driving, just say yes sort of person who, you know, I grew up as a competitive runner. I'm still a competitive runner. And, you know, in running, when it hurts, you run harder. The more it hurts, push harder. And that's what runners do. And, the, you know, he who suffers the most, she who suffers the most wins. So I always thought it as a real strength that I could take on anything. I remember at the place where I worked when my addiction was getting bad, um, they increased our hours and said we had to work later in the evening. And I remember the other docs were complaining and I just said, Hey, you guys need to suck it up. Like we can do this. Yeah. So, but the way I was sucking it up was, you know, pouring amphetamines on the fire and, uh, just telling myself, yeah, this is what I, this is what needs to happen. It's the only way I mean, there were times where I thought I, you know, I'm barely starting my career and I'm so sad. I'm just so stricken with sadness with the, all the losses and what's happening. I'm thinking there's no way I can do this job. I can't do this job. You know, I, I would think, you know, maybe I'll just run out of my office and I'll just run west towards the mountains and I'll just keep running and running and running and I'll just run until like the sadness stops. And then when the addiction started getting bad, I remember thinking, I need to run into the mountains and find a high mountain running camp and just live there. Just show up and say, I need to be here for a while. And I knew that if I could just run, take a break, stop doing amphetamines, I would be okay. But of course, that, that's not how it went. Um, luckily, nothing horrible or life-threatening happened and eventually I was able to tell my wife and then you know the elephant in the room became clear because I couldn't sleep and I was super irritable and I was just miserable and, and I'm usually a um, super happy golden retriever sort of person you know wagging my tail like let's play let's play <laughs> and so especially that last 18 months I was just running on fumes and you know, it's the kind of thing, everybody knew something was wrong, but nobody could knew what. And I knew once I told my wife that that would end it, because then it would be incredibly obvious. And so that did stop it, fortunately. 
so that that was one abyss moment was having to tell her and just the horror of you know the lying and the deception that all addicts have to do you know addiction is a liar's disease and you can't become a good addict and not lie your way through it and then i think the second abyss moment that was that went along with that was a few months later my wife asked me to self-report to the Colorado Physicians Health Program because she said, you know, that'll be just good for you to be followed by them and monitored. And so I went to them and yeah, and they said, oh yeah, very good and glad that you're six months clean and that you're here. And they said, so now you have to go to rehab. And I said, I'm six months clean. And they said, yeah, well, we've realized that... uh, Physicians and professionals just do best if they go to treatment for three months. So the horror of that for me was I had told almost nobody when I got clean. I told just a couple people, but I mostly thought, okay, I got out of this addiction and just kept it totally quiet. Because the worst thing I remember thinking during my addiction, if anyone found out, like if it became known publicly, that would be so shameful that I, I just might have to kill myself. And then I used to think like, maybe I should find some way to quickly kill myself in case it becomes publicly known. And I've come a long ways because here I am talking very publicly about this, but the advantage of you know the self-reporting to the physician's health program and then going to rehab was I had to tell my boss, my colleagues, my kids, my parents, my in-laws, I had to tell everybody. And that was brutal. And uh, it was actually the hardest thing I've ever done. Harder than getting clean. But the the beauty of it and the beauty of, of going to rehab was that it was a big shame dump. Like I did the hardest thing. I told all my loved ones and told my coworkers and told my boss and you know, when I told my boss, uh, she said, we would do anything for you. And uh, this amazing thing, she, I had just resigned because I was getting ready to go into private practice. And she, she said, um, why don't you uh, withdraw your resignation and you can come back on staff and that way you can get paid and your health insurance will pay for rehab. And uh, I said, wait, you'll hire me back so you can pay me while I'm gone for three months. She said, yeah, we, we love you. She's like, we, we would do anything for you. And that was just one of the most beautiful things that I thought the worst thing of all would be to have to tell my boss. And she's saying, no, we, we will go the extra mile for you. So what became, what started as just this deepest shame zone actually turned into such deep gratitude that the people around me were all there for me. And, and, you know, now I can joke about having been a drug addict and <laughs> gives me some street cred. <laughs> and, uh, and actually I learned a lot from it. It was, I wouldn't recommend it, <laughs> but you know, I think like, uh, again, like a lot of people on the podcast would say as awful as their di- dark times were, just a lot of learning. I just came, I came through, I feel like with a PhD in addictionology, I think I've become a much better physician. I think it's helped me become a more compassionate and grateful person. It definitely was a factor in the podcast because I don't think if I'd been through my own abyss, I don't think I would have been ready to make this. I think it's one thing to work with folks who are in and out of the darkness, but having been there myself in just such a hopeless ashamed place where I just again want to just run away forever like I get it you know it's not that you know my story is very different than everyone else's story and it's the same so I think you know one of the things with with back from the abyss is I'm trying to find the universals Mm. you know not everyone's been sexually assaulted or gone to rehab or you know put a needle in their arm or had their heart broken you know in the most unexpected way, but we've all either been through or we're going to go through something that just, you know, disembowels us spiritually. And how do we move forward? Mm. I remember when you told me what you were going through, I remember feeling sadness that you couldn't tell me about it. And it's funny, I was 
I needed help with what you had shared. And you're like, no, we're, we're liars. This is what we do. It's, it's okay. It's okay. I needed you to assure me that it was okay, that I wasn't able mm-hmm. to help you with the, you know what I mean? Um, I think that again, it's back to the, the amount of courage it takes to talk about these things. To, I'm just thinking about it, hearing you tell me what I know again, hearing it with new, new ears in a way, um, how much strength that takes. Um, and the, in some ways that this podcast makes a lot of sense for me, uh, now, right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, it's, but it's interesting because you kind of, put, you kind of put words to like, you listen to these people in such a way. I mean, part of me feels like you're just that listener and that's, that's your job. But part of me is like, there's some, there's questions you're able to ask, or there's a way you're able to listen or there. And again, maybe it's your professional, like, oh, we're not, you know, we're not, I'm such a judgmental person. Right. So like, and I don't, uh, Craig's not judgmental in this way. What, what is, you know what I mean? I don't know if that's related or not related, but it's, it's, it's interesting to me. I did want to ask you, like, what has been surprising about this journey of, of the podcast? Uh, or what did you expect and where did you end up? And what was, you know, where have you been surprised or where have you been confirmed? Or, you know, like, what what did you think would happen? What do you, And what do you think has happened? Mm-hmm. I did not expect that I would connect with so many interesting and, and really beautiful people because I, I thought, oh, I'll meet some people through telling their stories because a lot of people that are telling their stories on the podcast are my patients, but maybe maybe forty percent aren't. And more and more, especially in, in the coming season, it's going to be largely people that I didn't know before. But I'm also meeting people through being on their podcasts or people just reaching out to me by email who are listeners, and I have people up and down the front range of Colorado who just randomly call me or email me because of the podcast and want to talk or meet or have lunch or just bounce ideas off me. So, you know, I work in a solo private practice. I have two half-time employees, but I'm pretty isolated. And I kind of thought making a podcast would just continue in that sort of isolated realm. I just pictured me, one other person, like in our little room with our Zoom recorder, like sending it out in the world. But actually, I feel much more connected to people through the podcast and and there's this very deep connection I have with each person who's told their stories I mean to help someone tell their story I feel like I'm a high school football coach and I'm each of these episodes I'm like coaching this team like come on like we can do this and then finally we score and it and we publish the episode and I'm so happy for them like I just feel like oh my gosh I can't they brought them through the early fall drills and they didn't necessarily know how to tackle or even put their helmet on. And by the end, like they're crushing it. And so, yeah, so there's kind of a coaching thing that's been really fun. And another thing I've spoken to, I think in the first fishbowl is the editing is it's, it's in the editing. There's just, and I remember thinking like before who would want to be an editor, a book editor, a film editor, audio editor, but actually that's where the magic happens. I mean, there's magic happening with you and me right here, but the, as you know, too, as being a performer, it's really, it's like this image of, you know, you have this block of marble and you got to cut it away and get to the the statue that lies underneath the marble. And so each episode is, we're trying to figure out everything we need to cut away, but not too much to leave the beauty that's there and but only leave what needs to be there. And that has turned out to be such an interesting creative challenge. And, and also it's helped me connect again, deeply with you and a couple other people who've been great at listening very deeply and thoughtfully to the podcast and then giving me, you know, brutally honest feedback. And I love that because when I've asked you over the last couple of years for feedback, it's sort of like, Oh, it's good. It's good. And then you use the friendly people pleasing you. And then it's like, okay, I'll tell you. Here we go. And it's always told it with such love. 
but it's just, it's not candy coated. It's like, the, you know, this is you who has decades of experience in performing and writing and uh, what a resource that I can just call you up and say, let me have it. <laughs> just, please tell me what you think. So that, that's been so cool too, that it's actually, Chris and I have gotten to be such closer friends. And I think you and I have talked more just through this process, more of an excuse to, to connect. And so thank you. Yeah. It's my, it's my pleasure to, to do that. I, it's, it is, it's such a gift, right? So you're, you're, you're helping other people tell their story in, in your practice. I assume you're listening to a lot of stories, but now you're bringing it out and, and then you guys are crafting it in a way that, you know, makes it easier for us to hear again, back to like the, the raw story is it's, it's too hard to hear. And then, you know, getting at what it really is. That's a really great analogy of uh, this. is I told you this, uh, your analogies on the podcast are always really helpful for me, especially with things I don't, wouldn't understand inherently, you know? So, but you know, the idea of like, yeah, we're, I'm coaching, we're doing this thing. And then we're, we, we get it at the end. That's really, it's exactly, that's exactly it. And now this thing exists out there. question for you now more as a storyteller which is why why do you think it works uh you know in some ways like we already know the ending before any story you know we get introduced to this person she she has a miserable experience he has a terrible addiction they've got a horrible illness and they're back from it so we know you know what i mean so what what do you is there a a Mm. secret sauce or what do you what do you how do you why do you think it's working yeah there's something about repetition and mastery and almost like the horror movie. We love to be scared. We love to be kind of anxious on the edge, but we like things to come back and be okay. And I think there's something particularly horror filled about mental illness and losing our touch with reality or our will to live, our ability to make rational decisions. Um, it is kind of a, like a horror flick. I mean, in some ways, back from the abyss is like a is a now soon to be three season um, horror podcast. But it's okay, and it, if there's something that I think is just deeply comforting in knowing that each of these people is not going to come back, come back, you know, fixed or cured, or it's not going to be puppies and rainbows at the end. But that they're going to come through kind of battle scarred and wiser, with more compassion, and that there's going to be some universal in each of these stories. You know, even if you've never struggled with A or B, I think there's enough there's enough humanness in each of these stories that we can listen and just feel good. Which is ironic to think of back from the abyss as a feel good thing, but there is something there is something really hopeful. And again, I think, you know, I've talked about that a number of times before that I want to put out hope. There's so many things that are trying to crush our hope. And I want people to hear that there is definitely hope, even when things appear utterly hopeless. You know, I'm just deeply fascinated with the special sauce of change. And particularly when that's happening in relationship or in therapy. Like, how do people change in therapy? I just love that idea. It's so hard for people to put into words. It's hard for people to conceptualize it. You know, how did my therapist help me? How did my therapist, how did my therapy move me from A to B to C? And almost nobody can describe it. And so I wish, you know, a few people could have had almost like an, audio diary or, or or diary diary that they had been taking notes through their therapy. Similarly, as we descend into mania or psychosis or really deep depression, we really don't lay down many, if any, meaningful sort of narrative memories. And so a lot of times, <clears throat> excuse me, when people are descending into the abyss, it's 
psychiatrically, it's very hard, if not impossible, for them to to describe what's actually happening in their thoughts and emotion and body and in their functioning. It just gets turns into this sort of painful morass of everything all tied up in this ball of awful. But I've really hoped and wanted people to be able to sort of tease out what's the what exactly it feels like to lose your mind, what exactly it feels like to lose touch with the will to live. And we've had a few people who've been able to do that, but that's surprisingly hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in some ways that's probably a protective mechanism, much like having a baby, you know, or mm-hmm. going to war. We've had to learn to forget because if we, throughout most of human history, we're losing two thirds of our babies and we're going to war and there's no anesthesia. So this forgetting, I think there's something about the forgetting that's very helpful and adaptive. But in terms of storytelling, especially the kind of stuff I want people to tell stories about, it can make it more challenging. How sustainable is this podcast, your career? You know, I, as your friend, I want you to do whatever makes you happy. It seems to me that you're fulfilling a great need in your practice with what you do with ketamine, with this podcast. You present to all eyes, including me, uh, as a phenomenal father and husband and just community member and the choices you've made. You know, does it, does it feel sustainable or does it feel other creeping in of like, uh, just running as fast as I can, you know what I mean? I, I um, you know, with the with the caveat of if you're like, hey, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a pedicab, and I'm gonna, I'm just gonna <laughs> give give tours of for you know of, of Colorado. Um, uh, I'm like, yeah, Craig, that's awesome. But you know what I mean? Yeah, does it does it feel sustainable? How are you caring for yourself so that we'll have season four next year, you know, mm. both you and Chris or, you know, whatever. So that, that's a, a question I think about. Yeah. In the first season for sure. And second season to some degree, I think both Chris and I were on this mindset. Okay. We really should publish something every two weeks on a Tuesday. We should shoot for X number of episodes. We should try to be consistent. And I know for different reasons, both of us were kind of burned out at the end of season two. I mostly because of COVID and also just not, not getting to see Chris and collaborate in person and also not getting to do these face to face. Like we're doing this now face to face and it's awesome. And if you're in LA and we're doing this on zoom, this would not be good. It would be disconnected. I think for me, it would feel like a lot more work emotionally. It would feel a little sad that you're not here. And so, you know, I've resolved not to do any more distance episodes. I mean, I would be on someone else's podcast at a distance, but everything from back from the abyss is going to be in person. Cause this is, this is where the juice is. This is what humans do. We tell stories face to face. We sit together, we read each other's expressions and we look into each other's eyes and this is how it's supposed to be. And if we can only, do one a month because Chris or I is too busy. That's fine. So I think we've taken a little uh, weight off ourselves. And I also really grateful that Chris and I are on the same page with, we, we just want this to be meaningful and we want this to be enjoyable. And we both have day jobs. This is our side gig. And so neither of us have any delusions of grandeur or um, we, we just want to make something beautiful. So as long as we can do that. So you tell me. If when the quality starts to drop, you could say, oye, oye, amigo. I will be the asshole that gets this thing shut down. <laughs> hey, guys, you know what? <laughs> um, two last little things that are kind of related. Um, do, do you, so you mentioned on, oh, well, you mentioned on a podcast, it might've been your podcast or might've been another one that you were on 
that you don't do social media for this. You have a great website for it. I'm wondering about that. Um, and then I'm also wondering about, do your listeners know about all the other podcasts you've been a guest on? Because I've learned a lot about you on these other podcasts. I don't know if there's a, a spot on the mm. website that, that tells people that, because I think that it's a great compliment to the season. If you're a fan of, of Back from the Abyss, to hear you talking to other people about your practice or even about, you know, sometimes it's not even about the podcast or whatever. So those, those things, your social media yeah. presence and the other podcasts that you're on. Yeah. On my webpage, craigheacockmd.com on the media page, there's a, are links to all the different podcasts I've been on. So okay. that would be a good place to access that. Uh, thank you for mentioning that. Um, Wait, what was your question? The other, the other one was social media. Oh, about social media. Yeah, oh, which yeah. I get it, and there's a lot, it's, it's complicated. And, yeah. And, but I'm, I'm basically, very specifically, like, yeah. Yeah, what, yeah. Is, what is your thought about that? And um, why? I guess it's multi-part. So number one, um, it seems like a lot of social media can become kind of a cult of personality. And I don't want this to be the Craig Heacock show. I didn't, it's, it's not, I mean, it's my baby, but... So I just have a hard time imagining what like an Instagram for Back from the Abyss would look like, like me taking selfies as I <laughs> as I run because that's mostly what I'm doing. Here's me running. This is me running. Here's me uh, putting on my running shoes. Oh, here I am hiking in the graveyard with a dorky bandana on my head and trekking poles, and of people asking me where I'm going. Oh, here I'm running. <laughs> Um, so I just thought, yeah, I would have the dumbest Instagram ever. Uh -huh. Um, and, uh, and the other, I'm trying to simplify my life. You know, Sam Harris has talked about the only thing that we can really control is our attention. Mm -hmm. That's all we, at the, at the core, that's all we have is our attention. And that's just such a profound, meaningful statement. And so I actually have tried to become very aware of where I'm putting my attention. And I talk about this with my patients a lot. And the fact that, you know, there are so many things that are trying to pull our attention. Like if we just kind of run on neutral default, our attention will get sucked into so many things. And I know I'm, you know, I'm very visually oriented. I, my wife's on Instagram. She's always saying, you should do this. Look at this. These are so fun to follow people. But I think I would just get sucked into it. And then I'd have my social media and other people. And I just feel like time is short and there's, I want to be very vigilant about where I put my attention. So, uh, and then, a, you know, someone else could do social media for me, but then again, back from the abyss is, is a auditory experience. And a lot of the people who come on here would not want to be, would not agree to do this if they knew it was going to be videotaped. And a lot of them are using pseudonyms. So I think there's some, anonymity and uh and some intimacy and just having a voice so that's my long-winded answer to that that's fair i uh there's a um gregory gregory mccown wrote a book called essentialism and basically one of the, the thing i took from that was if you don't choose what you're going to do someone else is going to choose for you and the idea of being intentional is really kind of amazing. You're right. It is, it's, it's, I, you know, my, as my children get older and, and they're facing the social media thing themselves, you know, it's them against the screen and, um, you know, a thousand of the smartest engineers on the planet designed to grab their eyes and never let them go. And what would they be doing otherwise? You know, and I, I, there's some, some happy medium between no screens in the house, you know, go outside and play like we did in the 70s, you know, versus, uh, a very powerful thing. I mean, I, I get to these podcasts through this amazing technology, you know? Um, so yeah, that, all right, well, that's interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, as a kind of two is it has it been successful 
If so, why? And if so, how can me and the 24 other super fans <laughs> and the uh, 19,000 or 1,975 other fans support you? What's the best thing we could do? Is it, is it send money to Chris? Because he needs money. I will say, <laughs> just, Chris, give us your Venmo. We will send you some money. Or what, what are, uh, it, why, why is it successful if, if it is? And how can we support it? Yeah. Well, how about it? I'll start with that last thing. The, the best thing that you listeners can do that if you find an episode that really touches you or moves you, send that specific episode to people. Because I think it's one thing to say, hey, you should listen to Armchair Expert or you should listen to Back from the Abyss. And I very intentionally put those two back to back. I love, I love decks. Um, but to actually sort of curate a recommendation to someone and say, hey, this episode really moved me or I thought that this episode would really interest you. I mean, what's more powerful than that? Because I feel like Back from the Abyss listeners um, have some deep, deep soul, have some deep heart. Because these, you know, this is not a comedy podcast. This is not light. Like this mm. is really heavy. This is the most, I would argue, the most important, but the the heaviest stuff. Mm-hmm. So. All of you, that would be the biggest thing you could do. And I love hearing from you. So anybody wants to email me at craigheacockmd.com. Um, or you can reach Chris through that as well. And he loves to get comments too, or critiques. But back to that other question, like what is success? I think that is so interesting. And uh, Antonio, we were talking about that on our walk today. You know, earlier in my life, I was super goal-focused. Just everything, running, career, um, just think like checking off boxes. And I really think it, I think actually going to rehab and coming out the other side was part of that, but just becoming very focused on process and here and now, and just trying to do not just one day at a time, but like one episode at a time, just make one beautiful thing and release it. Take a breath. Okay. Let's make another one. <laughs> Let's try to make it better. And one of the things Chris and I agreed on this upcoming season three is that we're going to double down on quality. And even if it means fewer episodes, we're going to just really try to make each one as amazing as we can. Um, so... You know, it's hard not to get caught up in numbers. And you and I have joked about the number of listeners. And uh, it's really easy. I mean, we all compare. I mean, humans are comparison machines. We compare our mates and our homes and our amount of hair and how fast we run and how tall we are. It's just, but there's also something just so misery-making in comparison. And so I go back and forth between thinking, wow, these our listeners are amazing and those video calls with them were so great. And I just love these heartfelt emails I get. And then thinking, you know, there are uh, podcasts about, you know, drone flying that have way, way, way more <laughs> listeners than I do. <laughs> or ones that just, I don't know, that talk about things that to me seem not very important. And, but then I think, okay, don't compare. There's just nothing helpful in that. And, and then I look at the numbers and I think, wow, some of these episodes get three or 4,000 listens and I've never spoken to that many people. But then again, moving away from the number thing, you know, and I, I talked about this on a prior episode, I also really believe if the only people who listened were the 25 people around the world that I did the Zoom calls with, it would be worth it because <laughs> it was so, it was so powerful to connect. And you were one of those people. Um, it just... It just felt like we're doing something that really matters. And whether it's 25 or 2,500 or 25,000, I mean, I'm so pleased that I have the bandwidth and the emotional and um, financial capacity and support of my loved ones to do this. And, you know, my wife has often joked that, uh, that I'm having an affair with Jordan and Mike in the podcast. J- Jordan and Mike are my two main running buds in the podcast. And uh, she said that half jokingly, half not joking. 
<laughs> I spend a lot of time running, which is my main love, and working on this. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm really grateful to have a supportive wife and family. Because, and, yeah, this is a big labor of love. And here we are on a Sunday. And I think my wife's at home working in the garden or yard, and we're here recording this. I could be home shoveling rocks. And I'm not. <laughs> so I'd way rather be here in air conditioning. And I love that you and I both agree that, that the best thing that's ever been invented is air conditioning. I know. I love that when you said you could marry air conditioning, I could marry air conditioning. I, I said that to my wife. I'm like, you know what? I love you, and hopefully we last forever. But if I if we had to get divorced, guys, I've been through it. I would marry air conditioning. That would be my next wife. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> this has been so fun. Thank you so much, Doctor. I, I do want to say this story. So uh, when I first met you, I told you my dad was from Cuba, and uh, I said, "Man, but he would never be able to say your name. All the all the diphthongs and vowels, he would call you Craig Pichoch." <laughs> so I want to thank you, Doctor Pichoch, for your time, Craig. <laughs> oh, you're most welcome. All right, let's go put on our dorky hats and keep walking. Okay, <laughs> bye.